What does a film like this mean for us in the 21st century? There's an audience that is receptive to these types of radical slices of American history. Yo, what's going down? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast a week of bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden Smith. And I am Troy Polidori. And this week we welcome on Dr. Kamasi Hill. He is an educator, author, filmmaker, documentarian. He's going to be chatting with us about the film Judas and the Black Messiah. Um, We're not just going to be talking about the film, though. We're going to kind of broaden it out and talk about the actual true historical events upon which the film is based. Of course, we'll talk a little bit about the film because the performances were electric, the direction is fire, um, and it's just an amazing feat that a film like this that is unabashedly revolutionary, unabashedly communist, we might even say, and unabashedly in praise of um, the sort of more uh, radical and we might even say a violent uh, and armed um, revolutionary conflict for uh, black uh, black liberation. Um, so this is a very interesting conversation. Kamasi is an electric orator, and so definitely stick around for that. Can't wait to get into that and share that with you all. So that will be in the main segment. Troy, got any housekeeping that we got to talk about? Yeah, just a couple of things. As usual, you can go to patreon.com slash Isles of Dawn if you want to support us in some tangible ways. And we have goodies there for you, like our very own brand new, brand spanking new Discord server. We have... Yeah. Uh, yeah, we have channels up there to talk about philosophy, the episodes we put together, media, bullshit, sports, whatever. Uh, sharing memes, we're into it all. So if you want to join the uh, the parliament on Patreon, you can do that and get access to our Discord server, as well as access to picking our next patron-sponsored episode. We have the thread asking for potential topics up right now on patreon.com slash owlsatdawn. And if you... Uh, put some topics you might like to hear in there. Eventually, we'll pick three or four of them we think we could service and then put a poll up for the patrons to decide what we can do for our next patron-sponsored episode. Sweet. Also, uh, if you're interested in picking up some merch, we've got mugs and totes and stickers and iPhone covers. Go to owlsatdawn.com slash merch, and you can check that out. Obviously, all the links are down below in the show notes, too, so you can click all of those. Easy peasy. I think that's pretty much it. Uh, let's get into this madness. Yeah, dude? Yeah, man. So the first thing we got to do before we talk to Kamasi is the shitty minute. And for those who are unaware, the shitty minute's the part of the episode where one of us rants and raves about whatever it is that's grinding our gears and has gotten us down, that's oppressing us this week. Huh. So, Austin, who is your J. Edgar Hoover this week? <laughs> oh, shit. Well, I wouldn't go that far. Um... Actually, it, it's kind of – I think it's going to be a light, shitty minute. We'll see. Sometimes I say that and I do get ramped up a little bit. But um, I wanted to talk about this <laughs> Aeon article. Yeah, some, yeah, this Aeon article that I read that's called Myth and the Mind, and it's by Rami Gabriel. Uh, did you see this article? No, not at all. So the title of the article is Myth in Mind. The the little kind of um, log line here is saturated with rites and symbols. Psychology feeds a deep human need once nourished by mythology. And one of the other taglines from the, the article is how psychology fills the gap from the disenchantment of the world. 
And my shitty minute is not about the article. I actually really enjoyed reading the article. It's kind of a critical take. Um, Remy Gabriel is an associate professor of psychology um, at uh, Columbia College, Chicago. And um, it's kind of a critical engagement with the kind of motivations of certain explorations of modern psychology from, you know, the 19th century onwards. And it... It really kind of fleshed out a lot of my own frustrations with pop psychology. We live we live in a world that is that is fractured and we live in a world that is anxious and we live in a world that seems to be more and more intensifying with regards to these sort of um, anxious feelings. People at least are maybe feeling more um, capable of expressing their anxieties and their frustrations and their fears and, and, and depressions if, if they are experiencing that. Um, and, and I have long kind of had a problem with pop psychology. And I don't know if it's just simply because I'm a philosophy nerd and I'm like, well, you know, CBT is obviously piggybacking off of like ancient Stoic philosophy. I mean, the guy that founded CBT says as much. Um, and, you know, so I'm kind of like, well, just go to the source stuff. Just go to the real stuff. Just go to philosophy then, you know. <laughs> Um, don't tell me 12 ways how to make my day more efficient or something like that. You know, it, it just seems to skip a lot of steps because it devoids or it divorces, if you will, the practical, it divorces the, the lived, it divorces the behavioral from metaphysics, from, uh, questions of ethics, from questions of how to manage a city, politics, right? Um, and so for me, what this article really did is it really gave me some kind of further ammunition. And the way that he kind of couches it is that mythology previously was a way of grounding us and, and, and giving us a story, a narrative that connected us with tradition, with metaphysics, with history, with our culture, with our people, with our language, the rites and symbols and the, 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 the community of which we are a part, the worlds in which we move through. But modern psychology is more and more divorced from that, especially in its like pop psychological variants. You know, all the self-help books that that people um, buy in 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 hordes of uh, or, or in what's the word I'm looking for uh, in in, in, in mass off of droves. That's the word I was looking for off of um, off the bookshelves in the local bookstore. Um, that that those things can be useful and they can be helpful and they can give people what I think are palliatives. But because they are efforts to kind of cover over the fractures of a, a disenchanted world. Their, their efforts to cover over the fractures of a world that is traumatized by capitalist exploitation. Um, they're used to cover over the anxieties that come from uh, not just economic inequality, but racial inequality and gender inequality, etc., etc. But instead of actually giving us something that is grounded and rooted and metaphysically rich like mythology used to be able to do, it kind of just leaves you with a superficial and I think very very commodified and consumeristic narrative. And I've been really frustrated with with the kind of, not the popularity of pop psychology, but just when you listen. I mean, I guess it is partly the popularity of it because you get a guy, you know, that sells a, a, a best-selling kind of like self-help book and you listen to him talk and he's held up as like this guru that is enlightened and that is giving people all these wonderful things and so many people flock to him. And maybe people are finding something valuable and I don't want to shit on on where people are in their lives and if they get something good from 
um, a, a simple self-help book, then fuck it. Who am I to, to kind of shit on that, right? But at the same time, I feel like it's just – it fundamentally stifles people from being able to go deeper. And it's not just the fact that the book itself doesn't go deeper, but it sets a pattern, a pattern of thought, a pattern of how to live in the world that fundamentally forecloses the possibility of being able to actually go deeper and indulge in kind of what I think would be a much richer lived experience. And it was a good article, and it just kind of ramps me up about more my frustrations towards pop psychology. And it's something that's really been on my mind over the past few years, but really I'd say over the last year and a half, even more so, um, that I'm really trying to find my own footing in this in this space, right? And I really want to, and I, I mean, I guess it's been it's been part of my life since the, the old Christian days, right? Because what do you want to do? You want to change people. I'm sorry, you want to change the world. You want to help people. Uh, that maybe you do want to change people when you're a Christian. Um, <laughs> uh, um, but uh, but you do, right? You want to help people. You want to change the world, et cetera, et cetera. And so this has always been a part of me. And I think now I'm just trying to really figure out how I can be a part of that in a way that I can constructively offer things rather than just being a critic. And this article really kind of gave me some tools and it was helpful in that vein, but it also really ramped up my own kind of like critical stance towards popular psychology in so many ways. So that's kind of my shitty minute. It's kind of a shitty minute slash sticky leaves, but uh, like I'm annoyed with uh, modern psychology, but at the same time, um, this is a really interesting kind of article that I think that kind of hits the nail on the head for explaining at least part of my frustrations with with contemporary pop psychology. So I'm wondering, because um, you're kind of flipping between modern psychology and pop psychology, like what's what's in your target view here? Yeah, uh, I guess like post-Freudian ego psychology, um, CBT, uh, the sort of like self-esteem stuff from like, uh, what is it, Karen Horney. Um, Positive psychology. Much, what's that? Positive, positive psychology. psychology, yeah. Positive psychology, behavioral psychology. Um, those would be kind of the things that are frustrating me more. And I was actually I was walking through a bookstore the other day, and maybe you can help me with this. And I almost tweeted about it, but um, uh, I didn't know if, uh, if if it would like get much get much traction. But like, are there really interesting without going into like Lacanian psychoanalysis and stuff like that, which sure, yeah, that's that's great. You know, we're all familiar with that in this podcast. And if you're not familiar with on this podcast, just stick around and we'll talk about it enough that you will become familiar with it by listening to this podcast. Um, but like, are there forms of psychology that are um, that are are, are clinically uh, demonstrably useful, beneficial, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, but they don't fall into this pop psychology route. And I know there's like narrative therapy is really, uh, is really a kind of an, it's like a postmodern approach, which is really good. Like I've, I've partaken in that, um, which is really wonderful. So there are things, but I just wonder like, what are the kind of progressive, what are the radical, what are the transformative psychological schools that are popular now? Um, but that don't kind of fall into the, well, here let's just make you a more um, like a, a more pacified consumer or a, ma- a more pacified employee, kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely not the best person to ask that or to wonder about that with you. But I mean, it does seem to me like there's just probably a huge range of contemporary movements that deserve different degrees of of the scorn that you're laying out, which is totally justified, I think, in in certain cases, like positive psychology seems like its entire function is to make people more better grist for the mill <laughs> of you yeah. know, late capitalism or whatever. Um, whereas like CBT, I think, 
I, I think has been largely shown to be pretty effective, at least, you know, as for a like therapeutic program, which are largely, you know, not yeah. going to be super effective in general because people are very different. We don't have a full grasp of what exactly is going on in a lot of these uh, techniques, but CBT seems great for a lot of cases uh, and can help a lot of people, but then it's going to have that, that weakness of, you know, if the, if, if the causes of some of your sufferings are structural um, and not purely decisional and individual, then CBT's the best it's going to do is make you feel a little less shitty, but it's not going to, it's not going to really solve your problem. Um, which is okay though. Cause I don't know that CBT is trying to do that. Uh, and I think, you know, you can certainly um, take an approach like that. And as long as you understand what it can and can't do, it's probably pretty innocuous, but then, yeah, mm-hmm. there's, there's certainly going to be a, a range between those things uh, where different, sort of psychological movements are going to be more like positive psychology or more like CBT, depending upon, you know, and part of it's just how close to academia is it in some cases, like not mm. that academia is going to produce only good things. Of course not. Um, especially in like psychology and social psychology, they're going through their own incredible, like um, series of reflections on what their discipline actually is and whether or not they're doing anything or solving anything <laughs> about the real world. Um, you know, like the whole p-hacking stuff that's going on in social psychology and whatnot. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a whole host of stuff there that I'm just not super privy to and, and can't really speak to. Um, yeah. But you know you know what's fun? is mm. reading the old psychologists. Like, I mean, obviously, not going to say I'm a Freudian or anything, but reading Freud's pretty fun. Like, read Civilization and Discontents. <laughs> read, like, Piaget and Kohlberg. And William James. Would William James? Like yeah. The yeah, best. Yeah. Obviously, philosopher and psychologist, right? So, um, yes, yeah, so, so bring back some of that qualitative work in psychology and not yeah. the quantitative stuff, right? Yeah. The, the interesting thing is so the article kind of ends like this it says, uh, psychology as mythology grounds the materialist and historical origin story of mankind in neuroscience and empirical psychology. The cosmology of enlightenment humanism is enacted in the rituals of personhood worked out in clinical psychology and more esoterically in popular psychology. While logic and science have proven more efficient in gaining control over the environment, the aspect of myth that dictates dictates ethics has been underplayed. Modern man is in an anxious limbo in the middle of an initiatory ritual of dying. To believe in the all-importance of identity and materialism, he must face a vacuum of nothingness which would render the rituals of life meaningless. The truth might be that there's no unassailable truth about human nature. Psychology as mythology delivers at the same time too much and too little. And I think there's something really kind of interesting. It was that, that first paragraph in particular how the cosmology of enlightenment humanism is enacted in the rituals of personhood and worked out in clinical psychology and in popular psychology, um, and how, like, the materialist and historical origin story of mankind is in neuroscience and empirical psychology now. It's, it does, it, again, we, we kind of harp on this all the time, but there's a reductiveness, right? There's a reductiveness that I think I'm really kind of rebelling against here or that I'm reacting to. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I'd go so far as to say there's literally no such thing as human nature. Um, yeah. Very broadly conceived. Uh, and by that, I mean, like, can psychology say things that are true <laughs> about humans? I think yes. Um, but yeah, it's certainly, we'd have to sort of, it's neither the case that, like, 
I mean, it, it's weird when we say like enlightenment, uh, humanistic conceptions of personhood. That's a very multifaceted set of concepts of which there are many internal contradictions, right? Uh, some mm. better than others, right? But definitely like neuroscience is probably not going to tell us a lot about psychology. Um, mm. it, it's going to be helpful in certain cases. And certainly if you're doing psychology and you're ignoring neuroscience, you're not really helping yourself, right? Um, there are important correlations between those disciplines, right? But I don't know that you can like do neuroscience and then the psychology falls out of it. That sounds like a doomed <laughs> enterprise. Mm. Yeah, I think one of the one of the earlier claims in the article is that psychology is an attempt to fill the disenchanted space with a rich characterization of interiority. So it's this construction of an interiority that psychology. Um, offers as its own sort of mythology, right? And so one of the things right here, it says, it might be best to conceive of empirical psychology as a set of pragmatic methods to develop discursively helpful metaphors of the mind and hold out in hope that we slowly secure a set of reliable correlations between neuroanatomy and functions. Now, the, the post-structural language in this sentence was very is very, very thick. He quotes Bataille, he quotes Foucault, so he's also coming at this from a very sort of like post-structural, post-humanist, I think, orientation, which might be why you're kind of like, oh, I don't know if there's no such thing as, as human nature. Um, or I don't know if there's not such a thing as human nature. And, and he kind of says, you know, there might not be an unassailable truth about human nature. But, um, but I think that's kind of where the article's coming from is, is a sort of recognition that psychology is its own form of myth-making, but it does it through the process of um, uh, a, a metaphorical development of interiority, right? And for me, I don't think I have a problem with that so long as we understand that there's a, a performativity that's taking place here, which is why narrative therapy is very appealing to me, right? But I think my concerns are as those forms of psychology that start and begin and are rooted in um, the positing of an identity, the positing of an atomist, uh, atomistic individual. That's the thing that I worry about because to me it seems symptomatic of um, a sort of capitalist reason. It seems symptomatic of, of certain kind of Western um, conceptions of reality that I, I, I would just want to be critical of or skeptical of. Yeah, man, there's so much to say here. And I'm, I'm very torn on a lot of these issues in that like, there's something to the fact that, I mean, in the Western world, at least, um, basically nobody talks about consciousness until like Descartes, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. maybe Augustine aside, right? Uh, and that's probably a pretty important caveat. Um, but like the Greeks don't really. And so it le it does lend some, some, not necessarily credence, but like some like justification or something towards the idea that this sense of like the rich interior life of the modern subject is largely... Um, a myth that's come up to fill some gap, right? Historically. But then like, I also don't think that's true. Um, and that <laughs> it's also, it's the case that a lot of these, the myth making that pop psychology and stuff does can all be bad for all the reasons that we're saying, but only because it's parasitic on something real, right? It only has the power that it has because it's parasitic on this real underlying psychological structure that human beings have as subjects. And so, yeah, it's a, there's a lot of thorny issues, and I don't know what to think about a lot of it. But, um, mm. but yeah, it's super interesting, that's for sure. 
yeah, so that's my shitty minute. It's kind of a shitty slash sticky slash I don't really know what the fuck is going on. So <laughs> let's get into this conversation with Dr. Kamasi Hill talking about Judas and the Black Messiah, the Black Panther Party, Fred Hampton, and a whole host of other issues. So that's coming up on the other side of a little music break. Here we go. Yeah. All right, sweet. So as I said at the outset, we got a guest on this week, and I teased it a little bit on Twitter uh, because I had just seen the film, and I wanted to talk about it, and I knew that there was one person that I could reach out to that would be the absolute perfect person to chat with about Judas and the Black Messiah. We welcome Dr. Kamasi Hill, educator, author, filmmaker, documentarian to the show. What's up, Kamasi? What's going on, gentlemen? Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I truly appreciate it. Um, not only do I appreciate the invitation, um, I'm also a fan of the show. So, um, um, I, 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 am definitely, uh, honored to be, uh, you know, a part of the, the, the Owls, uh, fan club <laughs> as well as a guest. So I appreciate that. <laughs> well, awesome. Well, awesome. Well, we can't wait to have you on to chat about this, man. I literally, I walked out of the theater and I, I immediately was like, oh man, I got to talk to Kamasi about this. I was like, you live in Chicago. You have a background in uh, your dissertation was on um, uh, African-American history, on black radical thought. Um, you are the author of an upcoming graphic novel um, that is a griot's history that's going to uh, – the first series is going to address the Great Migration. You have a documentary that's on the children of black radicals. Fred Hampton Jr. is in the documentary. You yourself are a child of black radicals. Uh, black revolutionaries. So I was like, I got to know what Kamasi thinks about this film. So all of that is true, and I appreciate it. And those are great accolades, but I'm still stuck on the fact that you said I walked out the theater. I'm I jealous. Thinking, I was thinking the same thing, Kamasi. What a no, humble no, no. brag. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm sorry. I am sorry. It was a it was a half full movie theater. Life in Sydney is good. I know. I know. I've talked about my survivor's guilt already. Okay. <laughs> Uh, so then that means you guys both streamed it at home i'm assuming yeah yes yeah okay okay so uh kamasi first things first just tell us um a little bit about your background in two minutes and then let's talk about the film so go ahead just give people a little bit of a teaser about who you are sure um well um kamasi hill born and raised in the city of detroit um my parents um, uh, were activists, black radical activists in the 1960s and 70s. Um, like, you know, a lot of young, you know, radicals that are coming up during that age, you know, they're trying to make their mark on the world in the best way that they can and try to figure things out. And um, they belong to an organization called the Shrine. Well, actually, it was a church, the Shrine of the Black Madonna, Pan-African Orthodox Christian Church. That was a kind of a fusion between uh, Catholicism, African-American uh, Christianity, and kind of black radical theology. Um, and so that's how I got my name. Um, and in Detroit, uh, you know, it, that's that's the home base of, of the church. And then, you know, my father and mother became Pan-Africanists. And uh, so I grew up in, in you know, being uh, in, influenced and impacted by them. And by the time I grew of age, what connected me to what they were talking about was hip hop music and culture. And so, you know, mm-hmm. you know, being a fan of hip hop in the eighties and nineties, uh, I went to an HBCU Howard university and, 
And uh, that's where I kind of began my own personal kind of social, political, intellectual, spiritual journey. And I went on to attend seminary in Atlanta at an African-American, at the largest uh, black seminary in the country, ITC, and then got my PhD in religion at, at uh, Northwestern University. Um, and all during that time, from uh, post-undergrad all the way through graduate school, I was teaching and I'm currently still teaching. Uh, I teach uh, public school. I've been a public school teacher for, for 26 years now. So um, wow. I'm looking forward to one day becoming a full-time filmmaker as I make this transition, because I'll be retiring in seven years. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to making the, the, the transition to becoming a full-time filmmaker. Um, and as you said, you know, I did a film uh, about um, growing up as a as a, as a the, the child of black radicals called Born in the Struggle, and I interviewed other people who had a similar story. So I appreciate the opportunity to, to talk about a little bit about that, and of course the what mm-hmm. we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, and just real quick, give people a plug on your upcoming graphic novel because all of your work stems from a similar source, I would say, but it just branches out into different areas. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, you know, all of my work has to do. All of my work, I would say, is connected to black culture, African American culture. Um, uh, and history. Um, so I decided, uh, you know, as a high school history teacher, one of the things that's very frustrating at times is, you know, uh, living in this in this age where a lot of students um, are using multimedia sources um, for their own entertainment. Um, you know, r- reading the rote word is is becoming less and less an attractive source of knowledge. Um, and um, I personally lament that, but at the same time, I recognize that there's not there's more than one way to you know get information, and I don't want to delegitimize other the, those other sources. And so I said, well, what's a happy medium? What's a good way for me to kind of help my students, you know, uh, read while at the same time, you know, um, not make it so labor intensive for them? And so I decided to do a, a series um, of graphic novels. Uh, called the Griot's history, and Griot is simply a West African uh, a position in the in the village where you have uh, a person, usually a man, but it could be a woman, um, who is responsible for being the keeper of history, and they keep the history through storytelling and music. So I decided to do a series on African American history under that th- you know using the theme of a of of a Griot, and so the first um, book that I'm doing is on the Great Migration. So, um, you know, hopefully I can do more and continue to, to, to do more. And, and I've, you know, I've hired an artist and I'm working, we're working together diligently and we're almost finished the first uh, book and it'll be out. Uh, well, I'm going to actually put the link out for pre-orders in May. So sweet. Okay. So we'll share that. Yeah. We'll share that down below so people can kind of uh, figure that out and keep in tuned. I'm, I'm sure people can follow you somewhere on the internet if, if they can give you a plug or search for it, Google it, bookmark it, whatever. It's uh, it's going to be pretty sweet. I remember when you were first telling me about it, how excited you were, because it was in the early days. You hadn't really put pen to paper yet, I don't believe. And it sounded it sounded super exciting. So I'm stoked to see that come to fruition. Um, okay. So first things first, um, this film... Judas and the Black Messiah is a true story. It's based on the life of Fred Hampton. Um, can you tell us, a, well, let's say it's based on a part of the life of Fred Hampton in Chicago 
um, as a member, as the chairman of the Black Panther Party, and his dealings with um, Bill O'Neill, who was an FBI informant. Um, can you tell us a little bit just about the history of this film? What's going on in the background? Who are these people? Um, let's just talk a little bit about that, that first. So, yeah, so I think it. Um, one of the things that the that you know, I will say is, is I had to, going back a little bit to my work for Born in the Struggle, my documentary film, is I had the fortunate opportunity to interview uh, Chairman Fred Hampton Sr., Fred Hampton's uh, senior, Fred Hampton Jr., uh, Fred Hampton Jr., Fred Hampton Sr.'s son, who never got a chance to meet his father because, of, of course, you know, the unfortunate circumstance. So um, I did have an opportunity to connect with him and his family. And so I was really curious to see you know, what this film was, was, was going to be, how this, you know, film was going to take place and what it was going to be about and what perspective that they were, you know, coming from. So, uh, you know, so the film essentially looks at um, Chairman Fred Hampton Sr., who was the chairman uh, of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther okay, Party. Okay. And one of the things about, um, you know, the Black Panther Party, the Black Panther Party, of course, started in Oakland, California, in uh, 1966 and um the uh they branched out into other cities and of course one of the the thing about one of the things about the Black Panther Party was coming off of the heels of the formal civil rights movement um many young people were kind of disillusioned um with the uh some of the politics of the of the formal civil rights movement, the pacing of the civil rights movement, sometimes mm -hmm. the messaging of the civil rights movement, and the the kind of centering of um, of trying to obtain equality and power primarily through um, the democratic process, and the Black Panther Party emerged as a radical alter alternative to that. And Fred Hampton, the chairman Fred Hampton Sr. was um, a 17-year-old uh, young man in Chicago who was a part of the, who was an activist in the, uh, a part of the Illinois chapter of the NAACP. And like many young teenagers in the 60s, he became radicalized. And the group that helped facilitate his own radical uh, awareness was uh, the Black Panther Party. And so as a 17-year-old, he, he joined the Black Panther Party and quickly rose to the ranks of, through the ranks of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party and eventually became the chairman of the Black Panther Party of the state of Illinois at the age of 20. And so mm -hmm. the film uh, picks up on, you know, essentially really the, the, the last year of his, of his uh, the primary year of his activism within the Black Panther Party where he did a lot of work and unfortunately the last year of his life. Um, so that's really where the film centers on. And the other thing the film centers on, of course, is his, is, um, is his relationship with the FBI agent who was a plant. And one of the things that was happening during this time, of course, was the FBI instituted a program called the counterintelligence program, which we now know as COINTELPRO, which ironically was instituted, um, when almost when J. Edgar Hoover, you know, joined the, the FBI movement all the way back in 1919. <laughs> um, I mean, that's how long J. Edgar Hoover died in 1972. He had been an FBI agent since 1919. 
Damn. Damn. So that I mean just goes to show you the extent to which you know J. Edgar Hoover wasn't was was an institution within the institution itself. I mean he was yeah, how much he formed it and molded it over the years. I mean yeah. J. Edgar Hoover was investigating Marcus Garvey. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean that's how long you know what I'm saying. And I mean and and on top of that, that's how long you know you could tell like he how how much he had this obsession. With black radicals, <laughs> you know, it's like Marcus Garvey, yeah. you know. So, um, so yeah, so you know, the the film ex- explores that that relationship with an FBI plant, um, and um, and yeah, and so I look forward to talking about you know how that how that played out in the film. Yeah, I remember a line in the film where uh, I can't remember who was who said it. Maybe it was um, who was the other other main member of the Illinois Panther Party who died along with uh, Fred Hampton that night. Was it Mark Clark? Was that yeah, Mark name? Clark. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Does, is it he? He that says something like he was part of the NAACP too, but they worked mm. a little too slow for him. So that's. I think that's kind of an homage to the phenomenon you're talking about, where a lot of people were part of this more conservative stream of appealing for equal rights, and that it's you know various successes and failures for some people just wasn't going to be satisfying, and so that's what opens up the space for this more radical dimension. Yeah, and I would say even there's a broader context to that as well. I think one of the things that um, is happening concurrently as black young youth are being radicalized in the United States, you got to kind of look at it within its global context. Because remember, there is a colonial, an anti-colonial struggle that's happening in Africa. So this is, uh, and, and a lot of these young people, this is the first generation of young people who are being accepted to white mainstream colleges. And so what they're finding is they're meeting uh, blacks from the Caribbean and blacks from Africa who are who have been engaged in anti-colonial struggles that were that are and were a part of their respective countries. So they're receiving this kind of um, kind of diasporic political orientation mm. as they're in college and as they're for, uh, developing their own kind of consciousness around what's actually happening in in their local black communities. And so they're able to really, you know, understand the relationship between um, all of the forces of, you know, whether it's police brutality, whether it's capitalism, whether it's, you know, black nationalism, all of that in light of what's actually happening in other in other countries. And so this kind of internationalist scope is what helps shape the Black Panthers' political platform identity, and you can see it in 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 uh, in the activism and the politics of Fred Hampton himself. During the yeah. events of the movie, isn't that after Stokely Carmichael had already left for Africa and became Kwame Ture? So he's already over there um, during the events of the yeah, film. Yeah. So right? yeah. So yes. So in in sixty seven, sixty eight, um, that's when he uh, leaves uh, for Africa. Yeah. I mean, he's. I mean, you know, Stokely Carmichael, of course, he has its own kind of diasporic roots anyway, because his origin is, even though he's 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 matures in the South, he's actually from Trinidad. So he already has a kind of, you know, international mm-hmm. orientation, black, black, black diasporic identity himself because of his Caribbean roots. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is all a part of what's what's happening in the 1960s. These young black radicals are, you know, are developing relationships with folks in the south folks in the in the urban north and 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 they're they're meeting um black people from from different um 
parts of the diaspora who are struggling against similar forces in their own respective countries. So one of the things that really struck me, I think, when I was watching this is um, obviously it's it's it, I think it's marvelously acted by Daniel Kaluuya, Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield. They respectively play uh, Fred Hampton and um, Bill O'Neill. Um, one of the things that I thought that, that struck me so heavily was how fucking young he was, man. The dude was 20 oh, yeah. years old. And, and now I don't know, I, I did, I, I, and I, and it, and it actually caused like a bit of a tension within me the whole time because I was thinking to myself, not only who I was at 20 years old, but just hanging out with a lot of 20 year olds, even though I'm constantly impressed by the Zoomer generation, I still look at 20 year olds and I think, wow, that's a lot of political responsibility, political will um, to be kind of compressed in a 20-year-old human body, you know? So was Fred Hampton, was he just kind of uh, like an, an ex, like just a higher human or was there a sense in which like there like that he matured faster or is it also that maybe there's something about the Black Panther Party and and youth, because um, Huey Newton was super young too. Um, when when he's so like all of these all of these folks were young, man. Th- let's think oh. about think about this. Who do you think, out of all of the let's look at the, the 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 kind of the broad swath of the civil rights movement and the Black Panther Party together? Out of all of the figures that we know, who's the oldest person? Does you know? Do you know who the oldest person is? It's Rosa Parks. Oh, Rosa Parks. Oh, well, yeah, Rosa Parks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Rosa Parks is 42 years old. She's 42. For some reason, I kind of always pictured her as being like a 70-year-old woman. <laughs> no, she's 42 years old. Now, mind you, Rosa Parks is in her early 40s, right? They hire a guy who just finished his PhD at Boston University to become the spokesperson of the entire movement that was burgeoning since the 1940s, right? Mm-hmm. And they hire a guy named Martin Luther King who's 26, right? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Martin Luther King is assassinated at 39. 39 yeah. Malcolm X is assassinated at 39. These guys never reached their 40th birthday. Mm. Fred Hampton is assassinated at 21. Damn. This is a movement of, of young people, mm. period. Do you think there's the entire movie? So, is there something? Is there something to learn from that? Is there something? I mean, there's there's got it. It's not just a coincidence, right? Um, I've I've, I've well, I mean, yeah, I, I I don't think it's a coincidence, but I don't, but also, but I also don't think it's ahistorical, right? I mean, radical movements uh, are primarily the domain of young people. Mm. I mean, you know, listen, man. I mean, you know, you you reach thirty five, you you got you know. Especially if you're somewhat moderately interested in a career, <laughs> you're probably gonna get a mortgage, <laughs> you know, a partner, yeah. kids. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's. It, I mean, you know, to be an activist, you know, at and and you have responsibilities, man. It's it's. Listen. <laughs> um, well, this is one of those key tensions. I, I in say the at film. the beginning of my film, "Born in the Struggle," you know. Yeah. That yeah. you know, it's it's hard being you know, a revolutionary, you know what I'm saying? And have a job. I mean, it's hard. Or be a parent. Or be a parent. Or be a parent. It's hard. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the, that's one of the central tensions, right? With, with Fred and his partner. Um, I can't remember her name. What's her name? 
Deborah Johnson, her, Deborah her name Johnson? now, she goes by uh, Akua and Jerry. Yeah, but Deborah Johnson is her name. Um, mm-hmm. So when he and Deborah are kind of talking about having this child and he says, listen, my life is for the people. My life is for the people. And she's like, she's like, yes, but I'm having a child, our child. And you can see there's that scene when he's talking about, you know, the big famous, you know, um, I am a revolutionary scene when he's kind of rallying, rallying everybody up. And she's visibly upset about she sees the truth that he is committed to the people more so maybe than committed to the family life. And and that is very difficult for her because he's made a decision. Um, and obviously your film talks about this a lot, about how difficult it was with the child not knowing, like, is my parent going to come home? Are they going to get arrested? Are they going to get killed by the cops? They've been gone for three days. Where were they? Were they doing illegal activities? Were they just hanging out with some friends, you know, uh, talking about stuff and handing out flyers? What were, Like, you don't really know. And so there is this fundamental tension between the life of revolutionary politics and the family life and and. Some people choose one side versus the other, and it's very difficult to find that balance. And it seems like you almost have to choose, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, and and I think, um, you know, what? here's another thing that I often think about when I, when I listen to these speeches, and even when I read books by former radicals and revolutionaries, is they are very aware of death. Hmm. Like... I mean, very aware of death as as imminent because they talk about it all the time. I mean, I, I, you can't name a speech that Martin Luther King gave where he didn't talk about death. Hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, and the more close and the closer he got to his own death, he talked about it more. Hmm. And a big part of and one of the things about it is because I remember when I was interviewing er- Erica a- um, Abram, who's a daughter of the first chairwoman, uh, the first female chairwoman of the Black Panther Party, Elaine Brown. One of the things that she said um, growing up um, as a Panther cub, which was they called the children of Panthers, she said one of the things that was always happening was that there was always funerals in the Black Panther mm-hmm. Party. She said as a child, that's the, she said that's one of the things that she remembers among, more so than anything else is that they were always going to funerals. So when you are dealing with the existential reality of your of of death around you 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 it becomes a part of how you move through the world and understand your own relationship to it so you know fred hampton you know talks about death you know and the night before he dies you know in his speech that he gave at the church so i mean it's like it's a it's a it's a huge 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 thing uh a part of you know, uh, especially a part of, you know, uh, radical and revolutionary politics. This youthful zeal, like, do you think there's something maybe a bit um, romantic about it? Like romantic about being a sacrificial figure for the cause? And the reason I ask this is I got really fucking affected by this film, right? Um, And I I think it's, 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 it's a very powerful film, and I think people will... Um, especially if you're an emotional person and I'm just a fucking sap and I cry at every movie. So I was a wreck after this one, but I walked out of there and I wondered, you know, (laughs) I wondered to myself how many like white middle-class dudes are going to try to LARP as revolutionaries after watching this now, just because they're so pumped up, right? Like they're so pumped up that they're like, man, I am now going to take to the fucking streets, but it comes from, but it comes from ego rather than coming from a true love. You know what I mean? And that's what I'm wondering. How much of this is ego how much of this is youthful naivete how much of this is like mature i'm committed to the cause that kind of thing so what i it, 
See, Austin, I'm not. I'm. I'm. I'm honestly not trying to cop out on answering this question, but I would actually. <laughs> but I would say it, it. I would say all of the above. Yeah. yeah. And the reason why is because I don't think you can name. It's hard to name the internal impulses that drive the the intention and reasons why people become, you know, revolutionaries, activists, radicals. I I think it's a multiplicity of reasons why, and so I think all of those things are present. You know naivete is present ego is present sincerity is present mm. kind of almost religious zeal and conviction is present curiosity is is present um boredom is present like you know like i'm bored i don't know what else to do you know like all of that i mean it's it's all a part of it i mean i don't i don't know i mean i think of my own activist days which i am not comparing at all to, to being to, to being a member of the black panther party but i think about being a 17 18 year old kid at howard university you know, at, uh, organizing and, and being an activist around the issues that we were dealing with in the early 90s, especially around things like police brutality. You know, I I don't it was never. Um, I don't, it, it never dawned on me the the weight of things that I was dealing with until it was presented to us. Hmm. You know, right. So I remember being in a meeting one time and they were like, you know, they're tapping our phones. I was like, what? Like, it just didn't. Uh, you know, until somebody said it, I was like, whoa, you know, you know, and then, you know, you hear a speech or you get, you know, you get riled up. You're like, yeah, let them tap our phones. Damn it. And then we're going to, you know, it's like, you, but, but that's a part of the beauty of, of being young. It's, there's this naivete, right? But at the same time, there's this energy and there's this space to be able to do that. Mm. Listen, if you don't have young people on the front line, you don't really have movements. Mm. Not, and not in recent years, you don't. Just from a social psychological perspective, you know, the older you get, um, well, there's some sense in which when you're in a movement like that, a radical movement, you have to anticipate that probably you're not going to see the full fruits of your actions. And so the older you get, you know, in addition to getting all the baggage you get by having kids and careers and stuff like that, um, you're also less likely to see the fruits of those things. So it's going to be young people who have the fervor to be willing to engage in actions that could, you know, uh, engender great losses for them and not focus so much on the fact that they might not see mm. the fruits of those things. Yeah. And, and is there something about the openness of, of youth that allows one to be more inclined towards kind of not really thinking instrumentally or not thinking in terms of teleology or that, that they need to see the end um, and that it allows you to kind of just follow the passions a little bit more, whereas maybe the weight of of adulthood is partly that weight of needing to see results, of needing to, um, quote, quote, be in the real world, right? So you lose a little bit of the kind of utopian, fantasy, imaginative impulse maybe. You might even say you lose a little bit of the kind of prophetic impulse, maybe? Yeah. I don't know. I don't, And I don't even, I don't, I'm, I, I think one of the things we have to we have to remind ourselves about history is when we when we look at, you know, folks who even if we don't necessarily personally in align with politically, when we look at the impulses and the energy around activism and work and, and kind of like the self-determining spirit that informs, you know, hitting the streets and like, you know, you know, writing books and like this kind of revolutionary fervor. Mm. Um, I, I, I honestly think if you look at the, you know, 
the, the large, you know, kind of grand landscape of history, you're not going to find a whole lot of people over 40 years of age. Mm. You just Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> I mean, you want to go there. I mean, when he writes the, you know, the Federalist Papers, I think he's like 22, 23. He's like some ridiculously young age. Mm. I mean, he never sees 50. I mean, he dies at, he's killed at 49. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's like, you know, th- this is, this is just a part of, you know, uh, you know, at least in, in, you know, the last couple of centuries, this is definitely just a part of what it is to, you know, bring about a, a part of one of the ingredients uh, that are, you know, kind of indelible to these, to, to these movements, mm. you know, is, mm. is the kind of the injection of youth and all of, all of that, which comes along with being young, not the naivete, you know, the, the energy, you know, um, you know, all of that. I mean, it's just, mm. it's just a part of it. So I don't know. I mean, I don't really know if you have a, um, if you can really have an effective Black Panther Party to the extent that it was effective, if 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 it's not run by mostly people under the age of twenty five, you know. Mm. Well, let's. Um, I'd, I'd we'll have to get you on another time to talk more about the historical stuff. Maybe even we could talk more about the conceptual stuff. I mean, I'm sure it'll come up a little bit more. But let's talk about the film a little bit. Judas and the Black Messiah. You've seen this a couple times now. Is that right? You know what? I I, I I wish I could say I've seen it a couple of times. I've seen it once, but I've seen like a okay. whole bunch of stuff associated with the film. But I've I've seen it yeah. once, and the reason why I only saw it once is because I moved, <laughs> and in the in the past two weeks, you know, when you move, it's like you you know you're focused on moving, and so when I was when I went to go watch it the other day, it was like oh it's gone. It's like it's only in the theaters now here here in the states, which of course I'm not going to. Know. So okay, so. <laughs> So let's say, like, so obviously we said it stars Daniel Kaluuya, Lakeith Stanfield, directed by Shaka King, who I had not seen any of his other work before, and then produced by Ryan Coogler. And so it was it was kind of a dream team um, kind of coming together with Coogler coming off of massive success over the past couple of years, obviously doing Black Panther, but also the Creed films. And uh, did he do did he do Fruitvale Station? He did, right? Yeah, that was his that was his yeah. first major motion major motion breakout. picture. But I think I think it's important too that we underscore that the story was brought to Shaka King by the Lucas brothers, and the yeah okay. the Lucas brothers are a, actually a group of uh, uh, twin brothers who are comedians, who um, do a lot of work um, in in um, in in, um, in Hollywood, and they actually had the 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 interest in the story being you know ton. so they actually get the credit of the story being you know by them and and of course by Shaka. Um, producing uh, Chaka directing it, and um, and Charles King produced it. And Chaka and Charles, by the way, are not are not related. But the reason why that's important that you talk about a black writer, a black producer, and a black director um, is because um, you don't really find that very often in Hollywood. In fact, I think there is a I think there is a um, I think this is the first film that actually has an all black production in terms of not simply the writer and the director and the stars, but also the producer. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> okay. So um, what are your initial impressions? What, what I will say this, the first thing that I thought of was everyone, at least in my Twitter sphere, when the trailer came out was like, holy shit, that looks amazing. Please don't fuck it up. Like, please don't let it be just like some sort of watered down 
thing. And and I was wondering if the politics would have been watered down. And I did not – I was not disappointed at all. I was actually kind of shocked at the fact that that this was this yeah, was ditto. as <laughs> revolutionary of rhetoric that I have ever seen in a major motion picture. Um, like this isn't the young Karl Marx indie film that's like a European film that like 20 people see. This is <laughs> a huge, big budget – or it's a mid-budget film, but wide release, popular film, um, you know, the hottest – one of the hottest young producers in Hollywood, one of the hottest young actors in the world, like – a couple of the hottest young actors in the world. Like this was, I was really surprised sitting there, and I kind of was looking around, like, how are they getting away with this? And then, yeah, that was like my that was my initial thought. Like, what did you think about the execution of the film, the story, the truth, the the truth to the actual content of 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 Hampton's life and his mission and the mission of the Black Panther Party? Like, what do you think of that? I'll say this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, um, I, I, well, let me. I'll just say this really quickly. The the thing that brought me into the movie, the thing that sucked me in initially, um, outside of the the story of you know wanting to see a story about the Black Panther and curious to see how they were going to do it, was the beauty of it. I mean, I was, and I know we don't want to talk a whole lot about aesthetics, but I got to say that because Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. it was just beautifully shot. I mean, like I was like, yo, this is the way that the camera moved, the 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 dark palette. You know that 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 you know that we saw it was just I, texturally you know it looked like the 1960s so in terms of just kind of setting the stage for what you know 1960s chicago looked like how people how people looked you know the afros the dashikis the leather i just thought it was just beautifully done just from an aesthetic perspective in terms of like the um the 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 thing that got me uh I think to me, the other thing that really made the film profoundly well done was that was the cast, as you articulated. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, Daniel Kaluuya, I mean, gosh, British dude, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, just really, yeah. really captured uh, Fred, Fred Hampton's cadence, you know, his, you know, his look. Um, Lakeith Stansfield, you know, and the thing about Lakeith is he's such he's so eccentric, you know, I didn't know how he was going to be able to play Bill O'Neill because the only my I've only seen Bill O'Neill in the Eyes on the Prize documentary where they interview him when he's in his forties, right? Uh, but he captures him very, very well. Um, uh, so I, I just I love the look. I thought the performances were great, and I thought, just like you, like you know, they really, really pulled this off. I mean, there, there is nothing about Fred Hampton that is um there's they they don't skimp over him he is he is re- redemptive he's the hero I mean he's you know he's laudatory I mean they really really do a good job of kind of rooting and grounding him in his story um and we could talk about you know the nuances of that but yeah I I, I enjoyed it well and it, a lot of times in these types of films in the hands of 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 others they make it like a cautionary tale, like a yeah, he he had some ideas, but he was too exuberant, and this is what happens when you get a little too big for your britches, or you get too idealistic, or something. I don't, I didn't come out of the film thinking like, oh, this is a moral story about why you shouldn't be a uh, a Marxist revolutionary. I came out of it going like, I cannot believe they got away with that 
because he's still the hero, and it's unjust that his cause was stopped. And you still think that the FBI, the state, they're the bad guys. Clearly the bad guys. And and Bill is a very sort of ambivalent figure, you know, especially that final that final clip that they show of the from the actual interview that you're discussing where he talks about how at least he was part of it and you're like, "Oh fuck, like what and then he and then he commits suicide, I guess, the night that the the program airs, which is so he clearly was a, a tortured soul, but nevertheless, Fred Hampton himself, um, there is no cautionary tale about, wow, maybe you shouldn't be a revolutionary. As a matter of fact, you leave the film and you go, oh fuck, we need we need to all be revolutionaries. Yeah, if if you want any assurance that that was the case or that was the sort of narrative direction of the film, there's that incredible scene with I mean, can you believe mm. how they portrayed J. Edgar Hoover like balls mm. to the wall like villain, right? Where he tells Jesse Plemons, "What are you going to do when your mm. daughter brings home a black guy?" Right? Um, and the look on Jesse Plemons' face was so great. He's he's a really great understated actor, similar to. Keith Stanfield, too, who I thought was so great at playing that damaged, um, really internally damaged and conflicted character. I I also gasped at the end scene when they showed the interview with with Bill O'Neill when he's older. And then they show the the text that says that he committed suicide after that. And it's everything Mm. about the movie comes flooding back. All of the damage, all of the conflicted emotions and um stuff that clearly O'Neill was going through and the betrayal and all that stuff like it all floods back to you and has so much greater effect because of that one piece of text I thought mm. that was really brilliantly placed what is what what does a film like this mean for us in the 21st century like what does it mean for the Black Lives Matter movement what does it mean for um progressive causes what does it mean for um obviously the Black Panther there's there's movement. There was like this thing. There were these photos. Remember of like the new Black Panther Party, and then of course Fred Hampton Jr. is still active. Um, there are Black revolutionaries. I mean, this seems to be a very kind of um, protracted historical moment. What what do you think a film like this means for us? Yeah, I mean, so I I think on a very basic level, I think it's important that the story is told. I don't. I teach my students about the Black Panther Party. I I have taught them about Fred Hampton, Chairman Fred Hampton Sr. But that's my injection into the curriculum, right? Um, that's not necessarily because it's in history books um, or at least not centered at all. And, and you got to think about this. I teach in the state of Illinois <laughs> you know what you know what I'm saying? You know, it's not even a part of Chicago history that I'm responsible for teaching my students about. You know what I'm saying? So it's like that's so I think it's it's important that it's 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 a curated story now. I mean, and unfortunately we have to, you know, we can't simply rely on books nowadays to tell these stories. We you know, it's it's almost like Hollywood gives validation, you know, in that sense. Um, and I'm just thankful that, you know, a film, uh, you know, a film could be a quality film because listen, the first major Hollywood film about the Black Panther Party was hot garbage. And I don't know if you've ever seen it. I don't know if you've ever seen it, it was called Panther by uh, Mario Van Peoples. And it came out in the in the in the 90s. Um, and it was okay. I put it this way. And that move that movie had 
Chris Rock and Bobby Brown, the singer in that movie. Like that's how, right, right. So I, that's all I need to say. That's all I need to say. Um, so I'm, I'm just glad that we actually, you know, we actually have this film. And on top of that, you know, just on a, as a, as a side note, you know, um, Fred Hampton's, uh, 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 wife and, and son, you know, gave their stamp of approval because they were intimately involved in, in the production process. And, um, so that, that, tells you that they're you know that that they're they're satisfied with it because they're very 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 protective of his legacy i mean extremely i mean rightfully so you know um so i'm just i'm just hoping that what i'm hoping more so from this movie is something that goes above and beyond this and that is you know that we can uh look that people can look to this movie and say okay there's an audience um, you know, that is receptive to these types of radical slices of American uh, history. And so I'm hoping that it's just the, the, the starting point for us to actually get quality films, because it's not like there, there haven't been films about historical figures. It's just that they're so either they're so whitewashed, or they're just so like, you know, just milk toast, you know, interpretations of their history, or, you know, very Hollywood, you know, uh, centered, you know, I, I'll say this. I'm, I'm old enough to remember when the movie Cry Freedom came out. And Cry Freedom, of course, was about the, revo- the black nationalist revolutionary um, uh, uh, in South Africa, uh, Steve Biko. Uh, star- and Steve Biko was played by Denzel Washington. I've seen clips of it on YouTube. There's like that famous court scene where he's talking. Yeah, yeah, that's that, that's all I remember. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So Martin Sheen, uh, who's actually who plays, ironically, who plays uh, Jagger Hoover and in, in, in Judas in the Black Messiah, he plays the uh, the 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 white South African journalist in Cry Freedom, who helps uh, facilitate the messaging of Steve Biko. The problem with that film was it was about supposed to be about Steve Biko. Right. So the film is two hours long and Denzel Washington plays Steve Biko. Steve Biko dies at the 45 minute mark. So there's literally an hour, 15 movie left. It's like, what? There's a whole movie left and Steve Biko isn't even alive. And they're not doing flashbacks. None of that. It's just he's gone. And and it and it from from that point on, the whole movie is about Martin Sheen. Like It's literally, you know, it's like. Cry freedom, but a story about a white journalist. It's not even about. So I'm just happy that we're at another point where we can actually just have films that actually center, you know, um, you know, the historical figures. And I will say, though, that there is a there is a critique out there that there's too much Bill O'Neill in this movie and not enough, you know, Fred Hampton Sr. So I don't know how you feel about that, but. Yeah, I wondered about that, actually, because it does seem to me like it was an interesting choice to basically make the perspective of the film be through Bill O'Neill. And so you do get a lot of scenes with Fred Hampton without Bill O'Neill, but it does seem like the film is largely centered around him as the, you know, quote unquote, leading figure or protagonist or whatever. And I wondered about that, because in one sense, you might worry that that's sidelining the really revolutionary character to focus on some emotional internal conflict, which is not the most important thing happening in this story. Right. But then also I wondered the, the pro side might be something like, you know, when you make the, the, the revolutionary character, 
the main character, there's a worry about, I don't know, um, becoming like focusing too much on the main character to the point where you're going to develop like the bad kind of a propaganda tool or something like like that, where it's not really getting to the the, the human person that's there. Um, it's it's too hard to get to the internal life of a heroic a revolutionary figure like that maybe and so by by focusing on a side character and their sort of view of that person you get their interactions with other people and so you see their humanity and stuff like that and we do get some scenes with you know fred hampton and deborah just like you know cuddling in bed and stuff like that so we get some human scenes too without bill o'neill being there but it does seem like it's usually just fred dealing with people whether it be you know with cops and so it's it's conflict or it's with friends yeah. and family and it's love and affection or it's education and he's teaching so you get those sort of social interactions and that maybe that's a better way of of focusing on these kind of figures rather than just um sort of lionizing them in a way that's not going to be um good food for thought or something the, the flip side to this too is is how difficult would is it sometimes to create like if bill o'neill's character were the secondary character and it was just focused on fred maybe there would be no empathy whatsoever with bill's struggle right they wouldn't be able to see that tension and maybe there's something about that tension of of being um uh, an african-american man who's just i mean he's a thief right he's a friggin car thief um, and he's just trying to find a place, and then there's something weird about even the place that accepts him. He's only there in like a weird kind of tense, like uh, there's an ul- ulterior motive. But then at the end, he somehow still thinks that he had a place in that place, even though he was there as a snitch. So there's that tension. I don't think would nearly be as rich. You wouldn't be able to in any way empathize with that if he were merely the secondary character because you'd, the entire time you would already judge him. Oh, he's he's fucking bad. He's bad. He's bad. But this kind of is like the guy's just trying to find his way. And so you kind of automatically are, are a little bit on his side. You're rooting for him a little bit even though you know what's going to happen, you know? Yeah, and, and, and that's bringing the conversation full circle around to what we talked about earlier I, I I think I would have wished that with the Bill O'Neill character, um, and even to a certain extent the Fred Hampton uh, character, that that there would have been some type of reference to age, because while you know Fred Hampton Senior is twenty, Bill O'Neill is nineteen. I mean he's a ki- oh, he's a kid. I mean, oh, he's, shit, I did not know that. Yeah, I mean, he's a kid who's being, he's, he's, who's essentially like scared because he doesn't want to go to jail, right? And he's being used by the FBI. I mean, he's a kid. I mean, at the end of the day, he's 19 years old. Yeah. You know, so like we, we could talk all the day about the decisions that he made. I mean, the fact of the matter was they, they, they used a teenager, you know? So, um, but I think the other point that I wanted to make, um, um, there's, you know, you were mentioning there's um, all of the, the different scenes where Fred Hampton is interacting with folks. To me, one of the, the best parts of the film is Fred Hampton's senior's vision of organizing and coalition building. Um, the fact that he can go to a white supremacist group, 
that was a great scene to arrive <laughs> to a to a rival gang and then when he's leaving that he's like well maybe we should go and talk to the gangster disciples like which is the largest gang still here in chicago you know the gds i mean it's like he's literally building this you know broad base you know intra-racial but cross-class struggle right and under the guise, and he explicitly talks about, you know, the, the, redeem, the redemptive features of socialism. So it's, it's you know, because he's, 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 he's making a very explicit critique about capitalism. Um, and he's making a specific appeal to a broad base, you know, uh, racially based or um, movement. I mean, the, Fred Hampton is the one that's, it's not the Black Panther Party that said white power for white people, black power for, it's Fred Hampton who said that. That's Fred, that's Fred Hampton. That's not Ewe Newton. That's not Bobby Seale. That's not Eldridge Cleaver. It was Fred Hampton who said black power for black people, white power for black people, you know, white power, black people, you know, brown power for brown people, yellow, all power to the people. Like that's Fred Hampton. And so when you look at it from that perspective, I'm like, yeah, this dude was gaining this type of traction at the age of 2021, building this broad based coalition between folks who, who are not supposed to be talking to one another, who are not supposed to agree with one another, and they're, 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 they're hearing, listening to him, and becoming central to you know, his, um, his, his burgeoning identity as an organizer. Yeah, the two biggest, two of the biggest tensions, I don't know if they are the two biggest, but two of the biggest tensions for me that this film articulates are... Uh, if you open it up to like the broader cultural moment is one, there's the debate between identity politics and class-based politics, right? This film firmly kind of comes down on one side of that, right? Um, I think, which is very interesting. And usually a lot of these films that are biopics, they, they, it's like the person overcomes racism, but they are the strong individual who has a sense of identity or self or something like that. And it kind of feeds into more of like a liberal conception. This one clearly comes down on an anti-capitalist and structural critique, a class critique. That that I thought was very interesting. Um, and then the second thing was the side of, you know, everybody loves to fetishize Martin Luther King Jr. White people love to take Martin Luther King Jr. and tweet about it. Conservatives and Republicans who are racist as shit love to use Martin Luther King Jr. to kind of like rally support, right? <laughs> and this film clearly takes the other route and goes the against the path of nonviolence as being a valid and um, a respectable and actually a, uh, um, a viable alternative. I mean, I, I, viable. Um, I mean, he, he gets murdered in the end, so is, is it viable? But it's viable in the sense that he was actually contesting the real power levers. And then what it shows you is, oh, there's the bad guys. The bad guys are those who are in control of power. So those are the two big tensions that I thought this film was so interesting about because it comes down on the opposite side of what we typically are bombarded with, one in Hollywood, but also in, in liberal discourse more broadly. I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah, I mean, you can't make it more explicit than those scenes where, where Fred Hampton's basically saying, we want to get free healthcare, we want to get free education, or what's the, what's the, there's something first that he says, once you get free this, then you're going to want free healthcare, then you're going to want free education, and then you're going to be free or something like that, right? Um, and then he gives up the, the money that he's going to use, was supposed to use to escape to, uh, to Africa or Cuba and uses it to start a, 
the medical clinic that they were building. So yeah, I mean the the structural critique and the anti-capitalist uh, elements they're they're right there front and center. I mean, I think socialism was dropped within the first two or three minutes of the film. So they were not hiding. They're not hiding the ball yeah. in terms of where they were going with that. Hmm. Okay. Um, we're kind of running up against the time here. Kamasi, we got to get you on another time. Give us your final thoughts here. I mean, I guess, I guess kind of what I wonder is Fred Hampton Jr. never gets to meet his father. His father is murdered under horrific circumstances by the FBI um, you've thought a lot about this. You've made a documentary about this. What is it like to be a child of black revolutionaries? What is the impact that this has on the local, the people around you growing up, going to a funeral or going to funerals frequently? What is it like being a child of a Fred Hampton senior? What is it like being a child of, um, individuals that were a part of this movement in the sixties? Well, I'll talk, I'll talk about it from two perspectives. Um, and I'll just mention Fred Hampton Jr. quickly. I did have an opportunity to, to meet with Fred Hampton. He's a part of my documentary. And I'll just say this, uh, Fred Hampton Jr., his heart is just genuinely, you know, connected to, still connected to the work that his father did. Um, but I will say that he, he wears and bears the weight of being Fred Hampton Jr. Um, he wears it. It's it's and it's it's a burden that he he carries. He's 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 doing the best he can with it, but it's it's it, there's I don't know anybody who's met Fred Hampton Jr. personally who's met him and has not come to the same conclusion that he he he's definitely bearing the weight of his father's death with him. Um, and I think that that's the case for many uh, folks, you know, who grew up with parents who were on the front line, um, even if they did not necessarily die. Um, but, you know, it's a mixed bag. So you do have some who are, um, you know, you do, I, I'll say this, I, you know, there's a, there's a kind of energy around folks who grew up as children of black radicals that is um that you can tell that their work the work that the, no matter what work that they do even if it's not necessarily political activism or social activism that they carry with them a kind of certain swag you know like uh, the kind of a certain confidence you know um with them i think of um you know, one particular person I'm thinking about is the, I don't know if anyone, I don't know if you know the mayor of Newark, New Jersey, and the mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, both of them, Chokwe Lumumba Jr., uh, who's the mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, and then Raz Baraka, who's the mayor of Newark, New Jersey, both of them um, have fathers who were, you know, diehard members of the Black Power Movement. And the energy around their, around the work that they do in those respective cities, you can just see it. I mean, it, it, it emanates. I mean, it's, they wear it very, very, very well. So there is this, there is that, you know, that kind of, you know, passing on the baton of, if not the actual politics, but the spirit of the work that, that they did. But, you know, the flip side of it is you do have, you know, folks who were like, no, nah, that's my father. That's my mother. They did that. 
they weren't around me when I was growing up. I don't want to do that to my children. I'm not my parents. And so I think that that's, that's also, you know, the, the reality as well. At the end of the day for me, you know, activism is always going to be in the hands of the few. And it's always a deeply, profoundly personal choice. You know, there's an old saying, don't get mad at the martyr. He loves his job. You know, you that you know you you know you 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 kind of have to you kind of have to accept it when you when you're entering into especially radical politics, you kind of have to accept it as you're entering in, because if you don't like you know, you you're not going to be able to protect those around you even if it's psychically like you're not going to be able to say listen you know, you know you got to be safe you got to be you know you got to understand this is what I'm doing if you go in there willy nilly or not. Under helping other people who who love you, who support you, understand that, then they're going to be impacted and affected by it. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's a profound moral struggle there, right? Where your obligations and duties to your friends and family and the people that you love are necessarily in tension with what you believe to be your calling, and you can find both of those things to be of paramount importance and so important that they would overrule any other obligations you have and yet they're in tension with each other and you just have to live with that mm. tension and that's yeah that's a profound struggle that only a select few people could really i think go through and master oh well kamasi thank you so much for coming on my friend and chatting with us uh where can people find you on the internet give your documentary a little plug and uh and, and again just remind people how they can keep an eye out for the forthcoming graphic novel so yeah, the 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 graphic novel. Um, uh, you uh, I think Austin, you're gonna leave the link where they can you know access where they can find it. But uh, uh, you can hit me up. Um, I'm not on Twitter a whole lot, but I'm uh, on my ha- my handle is uh, at, at Doctor Kamasi Hill. Um, so that you can hit me up there. If you need to inbox me, just um, look for me on Facebook and look for my name and just and just inbox me and we can go from there. Cool. And what about the documentary? Uh, is that going to be hopefully, hopefully going to be? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, definitely by the end of the summer, um, I I'll have okay. um, my documentary available. Um, and what I'll what what my documentary is going to be is under the domain name bornintheStruggle.com. It's not active right now, but they'll, they'll be able to access it then. So in the on the replays of this podcast, if you're if you're listening to yeah. this. If you're listening to this in, you know, August, you should be able to find it there. <laughs> awesome. And fucking Netflix, Hulu, Stan, Amazon, somebody fucking pick up this documentary. I've I've seen it. It's fucking it's it's really good. Um uh, it, it it interweaves these uh, the exact story that 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 Kamasi was saying at the beginning about how for him how he was able to connect to a lot of these kind of concerns and these struggles through hip-hop music. It weaves together the the kind of revolutionary impulse uh, to hip-hop music, and then it kind of synthesizes the two together at the end, and it, there's heart in it, there's joy in it, there's great fucking music in it, There's it's good editing. It's, it's really good. I'm really excited. I can't wait for it to actually come out, and uh, people need to get some eyeballs on that. So, awesome. Kamasi, thank you so much for joining us, brother. Thank you for having yeah, me. I appreciate you. it. Thank you. I Thanks, appreciate Kamasi. Thank you. Right, thank you so much, Kamasi. That was a wonderful chat, and um, I, I guess I would, I can't recommend enough for people to go and check out the film too, especially if you are interested in these types of stories. If you have any sort of familiarity 
um, with the historical events that are covered in the film. Go see it. If it's only in theaters in your area, I guess get vaccinated, mask up, and go. Um, if you can stream it, stream it. Troy, how did you see it? I uh, streamed it on HBO Max. Okay, yeah. So if uh, if it's available for stream, check it out. Um, I, 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 I thought it was amazing. Um, we didn't really get to talk about what you thought of the film, man. What would you think? I liked it a lot. Um, I was very taken by it. Uh, even though I was watching it because I had to, I was fully drawn in. I would have watched it anyway, mm. but I just kind of moved it up in the queue, right? Because we were going to talk about it on the show. Um, yeah, yeah uh, I really, really enjoyed it. I mean, I know that the, the content is super important. And, it's, and as we were talking about with Kamasi, it's really important that these stories get told in a way that centers the actual characters uh, in a way. And, you know, Hollywood narratives are not necessarily meant to be truth telling or, you know, replacements for his like history like academic history or anything but in the popular consciousness they play that role and so it's important that these kind of things get made so that this becomes part of the public consciousness but then even that Mm. aside aesthetically i thought that you know daniel kalua and keith stanfield were fantastic like i was so drawn in um by the two of them they were such excellent choices for reasons we talked about aplenty that um yeah, I really hope this goes down as like one of the most important um, politically radical films that's been made in this country. Awesome. Well, that's a little sticky leaves for you. For those of you who are familiar with the uh, show, you know that that's what's coming up next. It's a segment of the episode where one of us gets to talk about something that's giving us meaning in a world that is potentially meaningless. This is the recommendation portion of the show. And so you got one wreck. Go check out Judas and the Black Messiah. But Troy's going to tell us about something else. So Troy, what's giving you meaning right now, brother? So I just finished a couple days ago the book, The Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. I've talked to you a little bit about this, haven't I? You've talked about him a lot. Yeah. So are you familiar at all with Kim Stanley Robinson? KSR? Oh, is he No, known? not at all. No. Yeah, so I have actually never read any of his books. He's most famous, I guess, for the Mars trilogy, which he was a trilogy of sci-fi books about colonization of Mars that he wrote in the 90s and won a bunch of um, sci-fi awards for, like the Hugo Award and the Nebula Award and stuff like that. Um, Just last year, I think in October or November, it came out. So it's brand new. It's his newest book, Ministry for the Future. And some people that I follow online were raving about it and how it's like going to be the most important – sort of political and cultural book of the century in some ways. Um, as far as the... Holy shit, that's pro- a claim. Yeah, probably like, I don't, I don't want to quote anybody, but politically it seems like it's it's reaching for being like the book that people remember about this time period. And the, here's why. And you can see just from the plot basically why it is. It's called The Ministry for the Future. It's like a billion pages long. It's very big. Um, and it follows this it's not really near future because it's set in like the 2050s and 60s uh ish around there um but it's following this um ministry which is a part of the paris climate accords and i guess there's some clause in the paris climate accords that says that they can form these kind of ad hoc ministries when they see fit and so i guess ksr took that idea and was like well what if they created a ministry whose sole focus was to advocate for persons um, who are not alive yet and for animals and nature. So people who can't um, sort of demand satisfaction of their own rights themselves. So they just, they, this ministry covers those groups, right? And the book 
is it's really weirdly structured. Um, probably a quarter of the novel fa- follows uh, Mary, who's the head of the Ministry for the Future, and she's an Irish uh, bureaucrat who basically has this thing and wants to do it like in the kind of typical bureaucratic way, although she's you know pretty feisty and stuff. She spends her time lobbying uh, economic advisors and central banks and um, stuff like that to try and get them hmm. on uh, on her uh, on her path for you know reducing carbon emissions and reaching certain goal target goals and stuff like that. Another maybe third, maybe fifth of it covers a guy named Frank who um, experiences a mass like mass disaster event in India when he's I forget why he's an American but he's in India for some reason I don't remember why um, and he experiences this terrible catastrophe uh, climate event and it traumatizes him and he and he spends the rest of his time kind of engaging in like anarchic terrorist actions against people who are. Uh, you know, like CEOs and executives of carbon emitting corporations and stuff like that and politicians and stuff too. Um, And then another quarter of it is like all over the place, different kind of genres of uh, fiction and nonfiction. There's like notes for meetings, which are actually surprisingly very interesting, mostly because they're very short, a couple pages and they're written in like minute style. So it's not full sentences. Um, hmm. But they're just describing um, meetings between the Ministry for the Future or them and a central bank or whatever. There's just random, what seems like KSR pontificating on kind of pop philosophical stuff. Um, I don't know if I told you this, but his PhD advisor was Frederick Jameson. Mm. Uh, and he dedicated the book actually to Frederick Jameson. So there's a very strong like, and he says it somewhere in the book, some character says the it's easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism. So that's kind of a guiding light <laughs> for the yeah. book. Um, it's trying to imagine how we could get out of the end of the world, basically. And then the coolest part of the book, and it's, it's rocking my world because not, not many people have read this yet. So I'm waiting for more people to read it so I can talk about it with people. But there's a whole underlying plot in the book where there's this group Probably, it seems like it's a, a bunch of uh, Indian people from you know the subcontinent of India. Um, they're called the Children of Kali. And what happens is, the very first chapter of the book, there's a, uh, a climate event where, do you know what wet bulb temperature is? I learned this by reading the book. Mm-hmm. So, so there's a thought that you can't really measure the, the danger of heat waves by pure temperature, like, as we normally measure it. Because it's a combination of temperature plus humidity that will be the most disastrous for human beings as like a single event, right? Not just indirectly, mm-hmm. but directly like dying from heat. So there's a thing called wet bulb temperature where you basically like wet a cloth and put it on a bulb with some kind of whatever more sophisticated method for doing this. And it measures the temperature that combines in a way um, the temperature plus the humidity. And there's something mm-hmm. like, I don't know what it's like, 96 degrees where you have this wet bulb temperature, which is something like, I don't know, 110 degrees plus 70% humidity, some combination like that. It's not exactly that, but something like that. And people will just start dying, like within hours. And mm-hmm. what happens is the grid goes down in a huge part of India during one of these wet bulb temperature of 96 or 97 degrees or whatever. And just tens of millions of people die in a, in a week. And the first, the first chapter is describing Frank as he's running through this town in India trying to find shade and not die while everybody's mm. dying around him. And it's 
Mm. It's like you can just imagine this being the opening scene of a film or an HBO series and it being riveting. And the rest of the book isn't usually like that. It's not kind of action thriller, you know, desperation oriented like that. But the first chapter is it's invigorating to read. I'm, I, I knew as soon as I read that first chapter, oh, man, I'm going to love this book. And even though it wasn't <laughs> portending much about the genre of the book, I still did. That brought me in in a way that it really makes real. Like, oh, my God, a real disaster movie event is on the horizon. Like, it's going to happen. Later in the I book, got anxiety when you were just describing it, actually. Like, oh, I, I oh, felt yeah. it. Yeah. Dude, later in the book, it happens in Southern California. And, like, several million people die. Even though we have, you know, more advanced technology and cooling capacities. And the, the craziest thing is <laughs> um, Southern California actually gets uh, dis- destroyed twice. One by a flood and one by this, like, uh, huge climate event. And basically... What well, nobody- you got against Southern California, dude? He actually, I think... Grew up here? He went to San Diego, Grew up right? there? UCSD. Okay, yeah. That makes sense. And I know he doesn't like Southern California. Yeah. He said that before uh, in interviews that I've heard. <laughs> but basically in the book, nobody really cares. Like It's like they kind of care, but they don't really care. Because um, in India, when that happens, it sets off this rampage of like people becoming activists and like, getting shit done. And in, and in America, nobody does that. And this came out in October, I think, of last year. And it was so... It was so pertinent to the reaction Americans have had to coronavirus. And just like 500,000 people are dead. Eh, let's just get back to normal, okay? Like it, wow. he anticipated that sort of reaction so well. And even throughout the book, there's a constant refrain of America isn't doing anything. Like it's everybody else solving this problem. And America is just being dragged by its feet when it has to, um, wow. which was scary to read knowing what's happened since then. Um, so anyway... Um, all that said, it's a wonderful book. It's really great. I do, I'm I'm not a a person who can really say much about what fiction will have an effect on the world or anything like that. I don't know literature that well enough to say something like that, but it does seem to me like the kind of book that's going to have a a huge reaction over time. Maybe not immediately because it's very long and it's very huge and it has lots of ideas in it. But the kind of thing that people who read it remember it and they want to talk about it for the rest of their lives with people who have read it. And they, and they want other people that they know to read it. And so it will it will kind of build like this wildfire. And the coolest element, dude, I've kind of already said this, but I want to get back to it because I want to get your take on it. Uh, even though you haven't, you know, I'm not familiar with the book or anything. These children of Kali, like this group of probably Indian people, they're a shadow character in the book. They're only ever referred to, never seen. But they mm. build new missiles and they spend, there's one day, I forget what it's called in the book, but one day where they take down like 70 aircraft with these <laughs> missiles. And then from then on, no one flies commercial jets anymore. Because if you do, they'll bring Whoa. you down. And so airships get invented and everyone just takes airships and boats now. And so hmm. the children of Kali, it's, it, it's not really clear how much of the ministry for the future actually gets done what they get done. Like when they accomplish good things, is it them doing it or is it the threat of the children of Kali who are engaging in worldwide terrorist actions against carbon emitters, governments, corporations, individuals, whomever? They're assassinating people. They're doing all the black block shit, you know? Mm. Um, or not black block, but black ops kind of shit. Mm. And it's unclear in the end who's more uh, to credit for getting hmm. good things accomplished. And it's totally open, I think, on purpose, I bet, 
because I don't think KSR wants to say like very clearly that one of these will be more effective than the other, but they clearly both have to happen. Um, and it's I'm, I'm struck with like this. I can't believe a major author who's won major awards in the U.S. may have just written a book saying that terrorism is necessary, <laughs> like mm. not explicitly, but kind of implicitly. And I don't know what to think about that. I don't know how to react to that, but it's just crazy. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So they shoot lot, down. But... They they shoot down commercial jets. I can't remember if it's just commercial jets, but it includes commercial jets. Basically, anything that emits huge amounts of carbon, they just destroy it. Yeah, because that's different than, you know, kind of going back to Judas and the Black Messiah. That's different than the Black Panther Party picking up arms and policing the police, right? That's different because uh, because why, right? Mm, they were branded terrorists, right by mm-hmm. the FBI and various agents but um but they were living for a cause and they were identifying the source of the problem who were people who were perpetrating violence against communities and their people and so it's self defense right so then the children of kali they're identifying the perpetrators of a crime and they're defending their communities by using activity to stop the people that are directly perpetrating violence, catastrophic global violence onto people. So is it terrorism? Like, I don't want to sound like I'm a, a freaking apologist for shooting down commercial airlines here, but um, no, I mean, this, it is defi- sticky, it definitely this is a thorny is, issue, right? Yeah, I mean, it definitely is terrorism in the, in the official definition of like using – um, fear, using Terror. like violent yeah. actions to elicit fear to stop people from doing something, right? That's terrorism, right? Um, and so there, I think it's very clearly terrorism. It's just a question of, I mean, if you were going to come up with a justified form of terrorism, maybe that's it. And I don't know that I'm saying that I'm, uh, I'm not like, necessarily yeah, agreeing I know, with that. I know. <laughs> but like if you wanted to talk about an example mean. of what, what might be debatably justified, yeah. that would be yeah. – that would be it. Um, again, not saying that it is justified. I don't know at all. But it's just crazy that, that it comes up in the book and it's only ever indirectly. There's only one character who you think might be involved, but it's never really said for sure. Um, and I think that's on purpose. I think that's like KSR saying like, you're not going to accomplish this purely through bureaucratic means. Um, capitalism will not be overthrown by its own uh, handlers. Um, and so... Mm. You're gonna to have to have a, a, a like a varied number of forces that are interacting together um, to make something like this happen, and that's I mean Ezra Klein had KSR on his podcast and said it was like the most important book that he's read this year or something like that. Ezra Klein about a book that's maybe justifying terrorism. <laughs> that should tell you all you need to yeah. know about its possible reach. Uh, even though it's got some of these pretty radical elements to it, but again, it's also like and, and of course, bureaucrats are heroes too. So it's it's got some that liberal like uh, joyance going there. Yeah, and and of course, like the difference being that that they're shooting commercial airliners down. If they were just shooting like military planes or like cargo planes or uh, like logistics, if they were ta- attacking like logistics operations, that would be different. 
Fuck, man. It sounds really... I feel like I need to read this. I actually... This weekend, it, it's been kind of like shitty weather here, and so it's just super rainy and stuff like that, so I, I have no, like... Uh, temptation to go to the beach this weekend, so um, I think I'm just going to lock myself into a bookstore, and I was actually thinking about just buying a couple of books and just sitting there and reading for like fucking 10 hours on Saturday, so maybe I'll, I mean, I won't be able to get through this book. If I do this, 10 hours will get me through like the first two chapters, I'm sure, but um, <laughs> well, uh, it sounds like there, there's a massive, 106 um, chapters. Oh, yay. Okay. <laughs> but they're, they're short. They're all short for the most part. Okay. So is this like another infinite jest thing? Like I'll I'll keep saying no, I'm gonna read no. it because it's gonna take me two years to read it. It's super breezy. Uh, it's very okay. very. It's an easy read, especially if you're used to reading like academic stuff and stuff like that. It's gonna be a super breezy read, um, and really engaging because the the chapters are short and they're punchy and the genre changes every single one. So it's not gonna get. It really kind of shocks you back into attention. Sweet. Dude, if you, I, mean, okay. I don't want to like pressure you to read it, but if you did read it, I would love so much to talk about it. <laughs> no, I'm into it. I'm into it. I'm gonna read it. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna fucking read it. I always say this uh, about like recommendations when people give me novel recommendations. I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna read it. I'm gonna read it. No, no, really, I'm gonna fucking read it. I'm gonna buy it this weekend and I'm gonna read it. Okay, I'm excited. <laughs> All right, let's go ahead and wrap up the episode there, brother. Um, thank you, everybody, for tuning in and checking out another episode of Owls at Dawn. Of course, huge thanks to Dr. Kamasi Hill. Uh, make sure you keep an eye out for Agrio's History. It's going to be this sweet graphic novel series. The first series is going to address the Great Migration. He's also got his documentary, Born in the Struggle. Keep an eye out for that. Um, whatever I can provide links for, I will provide links down below if you're listening to this in the future. Uh, hopefully, all these things are already out there, so get your hands on it get people involved in kind of learning about these things um i think that's pretty much it man there's nothing else we really got to say check out our patreon get access to bonus episodes to the discord chat uh go to our merch page uh hit us up with questions on twitter or insta Uh, i think that's it unless there's anything else you got to say before we go troy just one more thing i can think of dude what's that dasta danya americanski